I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Team Human is free to all, but if you have the resources to support the show, it would help us a lot. Plus... As a full team member, you get access to bonus content, our community Discord channel, regular online salons with our guests, and free or discounted tickets to our Team Human Live events, like a free full-access two-day pass to the Unfinished Festival in New York City on September 23rd and 24th, where I'll be doing a Team Human Live with Xiaowei Wang. That's a $200 ticket for free. Most important, you will keep our editor fed and ad free show on the air. So go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others like Tanya M. Barr, Rick Pinkert, Vivian Martel, Felix Castro, and Ryan Chitwood, and make everybody happy. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we strategize successful paths to mutual flourishing. We contest the bullshit binaries of zero-sum and zero-one, aspiring instead to the simple joys of mutual aid and universal slack. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, senior fellow in residence at the Post-Carbon Institute and author of Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, Richard Heinberg. If you want to reclaim your power, you actually have to do something. You have to learn about your environment, about limits, about how to do things. You have to develop skills, and, uh, and it takes work and it takes time. Richard will be sharing the simple truth that power has a lot less to do with what you're granted or what you have than what you do. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. So like uh, many people on the U.S. East Coast, I'm still digging myself out from the destruction of Hurricane Ida, or as my insurance company likes to remind me, Tropical Depression Ida, which is not eligible for a claim on my special hurricane extension on my policy. <laughs> I thought ahead to the possible possibility of hurricanes because floods and weather are not uh, on the plan, but this isn't a hurricane, so it doesn't count because it stopped being a hurricane once it, it got past like North Carolina. <sighs> and I lost some precious archives, like a couple of letters from Timothy Leary, an old manuscript, uh, the first dozen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics, which are like worth a billion dollars, better than NFT money, um, newspapers from like the JFK assassination and the moon landing. And, you know, I mean, the real damage was light, my water heater and furnace and walls and floor and stuff. And my finished basement is now finished. <laughs> but 
the waves of muddy water that took out my uh, my basement they did a whole lot worse to many of my friends and neighbors they could really only watch as cars literally cars floated into their homes and their kids had to be rescued from upstairs floors by firefighters and their houses became basically unlivable they're living with friends nothing like this had really happened here in this New York suburb in anyone's memory. And I was, I was looking over the high school track and football field, which are just covered with mud with a, with a local cop who's lived here for like 65 years. And he said, well, at least we don't have to worry about this happening for another thousand years. Right? He was taking the weather reporter's claim that this was a once in a thousand year event very literally, you know, like the financial advisor who says the stock market investments eventually revert to the mean and produce steady gains over time. He was assuming that nothing fundamental has changed. Just like, you know, Steven Pinker in his new book says, look, a bad events, they just kind of cluster together sometimes. And that's just the way things are. And now we've had our once in a millennium storm, and everything's going to be fine, just for the rest of our lives. But, you know, those of us who who believe the 99% of the scientific community that there are forest fires and increased rainfall, extreme weather, rising ocean temperatures, melting of glaciers, erosion of topsoil, depletion of aquifers, and all are part of a new trend, you know, we kind of understand this a bit differently. You know, like the, the plumbers and contractors who've been doing storm repairs, we accept that since at least Hurricane Katrina or Sandy, we've been in this new normal of extreme weather. And our current infrastructure really, it's just not up to the challenge. But my bigger concern is that we as a society may not be up to the challenge. So while I'm totally heartened by that love and responsibility that neighbors are showing one another all over my town, you know, two of my friends join me with buckets to bail water and mud out of my basement at, at two in the morning, and other people they're they're working on mule trains for those without power or kitchens, and our volunteer fire department, God bless them, they've been pumping mud and water out of people's houses just around the clock while their own families are are at home struggling without them. But I'm still concerned by how quickly so many people on on social media, you look at me, I'm still like concerned, like, oh, why aren't people nice on social media, right? But that's me. I still look at it and think, why, you know, why do they want to like ridicule flood victims for being these kind of soft urbanites or they pre-dismiss all suggestions that there's something actually going on here? You know, I saw some people get a, a whole lot of traction for tweets saying, oh, we used to call this weather, you know? As if New Yorkers are weak and we don't know what weather is, right? You know, but but the opportunity right now, as as so many people are all over the country, all over the world, really, they're confronting the reality of everything from extreme heat and smoke inhalation to failing crops and collapsing bridges. But the opportunity is to remember the rather limited control we have over the greater world. Yes, human activity has certainly impacted our natural environment and our weather system. We did this. But this doesn't mean we're in control of anything. We're more like the toddler who, you know, accidentally pulls a giant chest of drawers on top of themselves by like climbing up the drawers as if they were steps. They had impact. They tipped the thing over, but they were never in command of the thing to somehow write it. You know, and, and likewise, we may have triggered some of the calamity we're now experiencing by burning more of the earth stored energy than the atmosphere could process, right? This raised ocean temperatures so that the cool water that used to be sucked up into hurricanes and calm them down, it's not cool. So it doesn't decrease their energy like it used to. And it keeps them active with more energy in them longer. We did that, right? We're responsible. But now that the effects of our own activity are upon us, we don't have any more power to mitigate them than the toddler does of preventing a chest of drawers from toppling over onto them. The best we can do is get out of the way. But that means learning to move around, accepting the reality of 
climate refugees coming to a border near you, building with a mind toward resilience and not contributing further to this climate devastation, but most of all, showing more respect for the overwhelming power of nature, even if we're responsible for having unleashed it. I'm so glad we get to speak with Richard Heinberg this week. He's the smartest, most even-tempered, patient climate expert and activist I've ever encountered. He's my own personal climate and energy mentor at the Post Carbon Institute. And he just this week published a new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. It can't be said any better than he does. So here's a taste of some compassionate wisdom. So hi, Richard. It's so, you know, you did Team Human maybe a year, year and a half ago. You had just published something, but I was most at the time, I was most interested in this article you had written where you were explaining how we were all obsessed with climate change. Not that climate change wasn't important, but it was just like the easiest sort of metric heavy you know, disaster, <laughs> impending disaster, we, you know, that we could use to understand the future or what we were doing, but that it maybe wasn't the most helpful to start with that symptom rather than something more, more causal. Uh, yeah, I think I probably used the, the word overshoot, which right. is a, a term from population ecology. And I think it's, it's a better framing for our human predicament right now because what, what we've done over the past couple of hundred years is as a result of gaining access to fossil fuel, we've increased our, our population and our per capita rates of consumption of just about everything. Fossil fuels are tens of millions of years worth of stored ancient sunlight. It's just like a treasure chest in the ground that we've dug up. And we're spending that treasure at an ever-increasing rate, and it enables us to do amazing things, you know, fly airplanes, explore other planets, dig up minerals and transform them into uh, consumer products and, and transport those products to your door in a few hours if you press the right button on your computer. It's just incredible. But what we're doing, of course, is we're drawing down Earth's resources, both renewable and non-renewable, at ever-increasing rates. And we're also polluting the environment at ever-increasing rates. So climate change is one of those pollution problems. It's not the only one, but it's a, of course, it's a huge one. It's the biggest environmental problem we've ever had. But if you don't frame the situation properly, then you, you tend to think, well, all we have to do is, is tweak these variables over here and over here, and we're good to go. Put up a few solar panels, and right. we're fine. <laughs> I wish it were that easy. The interesting thing about the people I've met through you who share this more systemic view of our problems and possible solutions. Like I speak with Vicki Robin a lot. She's become a great friend and mentor. And uh, Nate Hoggins, yes. who I also met through Post Carbon Institute. You folks, you, the three of you seem to most accurately see and I don't mean this in a in an ass-kissy way, but but you most accurately see the big picture of what's going on, which in some ways is existentially horrifying. <laughs> Yet you're also three of the happiest, friendliest people I know. Like, you're having fun. You're happy. How do you look square in the face of the potential onslaught of things that lead to human and other annihilation and stay so chipper? Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> there are a few answers to that. One is uh, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have a, an organization that supports me in doing the kind of analytical work that I do. And I, I'm very lucky to work with really nice, competent people. I indulge in denial just like we all do. You know, I think we're all, as a species, we're all deeply in denial. I do it too, but I try to be conscious of when I'm doing it. You know, I know when I am starting to feel, you know, really anxious and depressed. 
and I take time off. I go walking in nature. And uh, the other thing I do is a displacement activity, which is something creative. For me, it's music. And just, you know, creating beauty to me is, is an essential human activity. And the more of that we do, generally speaking, the saner we are. And you write a lot too on on top of it, which is which is great. And you know, and partly I've got you on right now to celebrate um, this new book that is coming out as we speak on power. Yeah, I use the word the term power for a very specific reason. Power is something that we can measure in terms of energy transfer, but it's also something that relates to our daily human experience. We're obsessed with power in all of its forms social power as well as physical power. And I wanted to bring that dimension into the discussion too, because social power is just as important to our human predicament as the physical power that is measurable in terms of energy. And then all of the systems that we devised to sort of manage and transfer and hold power you know, and how those become inst- so institutionalized that we mistake them for features of nature when they're actually just, you know, constructions of humans that we can, in theory, <laughs> we should be able to alter. Yeah. We yeah. have power over our institutions of power. You know, I mean, you laid out this book really nicely in that you, you kind of set, set it up with your three research questions, which I really like, which are, you know, how did humans, you know, Homo sapiens, just one species of, you know, hairless monkeys or whatever we were, how did we end up becoming so powerful to bring our planet to the brink of chaos and mass extinction? And two, why have we developed so many ways of oppressing and exploiting one another, which kind of brings up, and we just had um, Rianne Eisler on the show, who's really good for, you know, where that <laughs> where that yeah. dominator urge kind of came from. And then finally, the big question, is it possible even to change our relationship with power, to avert ecological disaster, and as you say, dramatically reduce the social inequality and the likelihood of political economic collapse? And you kind of end up on it is possible to change that relationship. Right. There are ways to do that. They just might not be the ways that we think. You know, it might not be by buying solar panels for everyone and setting the world's children into digging for rare earth metals to to do that. <laughs> you know, it might it might be uh, it might be both easier and harder to do that. But maybe we start at the beginning. What is it? You know, because this is Team Human. What is it about humans that led us to to acquire so much power over everything and everyone else? Well, you know, power is inherent in the universe and it's inherent in nature and living cells and evolution. Human beings didn't invent power, but we got especially good at gaining it and and using it as compared to other creatures. And there are just a few things that, that enable that. One was our tool using ability. Another was our ability to, to use fire. As, as a particular tool, and this was turned out to be really important later on when we found fossil fuels. And then language, which is, I think we underestimate language as, as, a, as an enabler of human power because language enables us to coordinate our behavior over space and time. It gives us all kinds of increased ability in terms of tool design and use, the ability to teach other people how to make tools like the ones we have and to refine them over time. And all of these things have side effects. I mean, just look at the side effects of language. Having developed the ability to, you know, use words and put them in sequences to mean all kinds of different things, to create sentences and paragraphs, you know. Well, what did we do? We started asking questions. And some of the questions were really obvious ones like, uh, what are you doing over there? But some of them were like kind of crazy making questions that nobody could really answer factually, like, why are we here? What happens to us when we die? And so religion was mostly a product of human language. So this whole sphere of human endeavor and source of wars and all kinds of things just came out of language. It was a byproduct. It was an unintended byproduct of language. So using tools and language and fire 
we were taking over the world already, you know, thousands of years ago, and we drove up many other species to extinction even before we had state societies and kings and all that stuff. That's a later chapter. I get that the expression an acquisition of power is intrinsic to life. And you show in the book, you know, how like little little bacteria are there, you know, and the way that they kind of breathe with their environment and, you know, create these sort of favored pressures and use vacuums and things to shove (laughs) that out and get good stuff in and all that. Will all species or most species unabated just keep going and going and going? I mean, is it is it always some other species that then comes and says, oh, there's too many mice in this field, so we're going to have lions now. Eat them all. Or are there species that just go, oh, this is good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> you know, and they just stop. Yeah, well, it's, it's both, both situations. And this, this is something I address directly in the book. You know, there's, there's what's bi- what biologists call the maximum power principle which says that the organism that is able to gain and use the most power is going to be the most successful at reproduction and survival. So we see that all over in nature, and it's, you know, the survival of the fittest and all of that. But it's also true that there are checks and balances everywhere in nature, from the single-cell bacteria all the way up to ecosystems. And sometimes those checks and balances take the form of uh, balancing feedback like predator-prey relationships or within organisms, it's like homeostasis, you know, so that if power gets out of balance, even just within a single cell, it can mean the end of that cell. So there's every incentive for checks and balances to arise. But there are also species that do choose to say, well, you know, this this is fine. I'm I'm happy with this. So, you know, there are different ways of there are other kinds of organisms like, you know, mice and bacteria for that matter that, you know, as long as the food is there, their populations will just continue to grow and grow and grow until they hit a a hard external limit. Either they've eaten all the food or predators appear and decimate them. So there, there are different kinds of species in that regard. We humans right now are going the way of, you know, the mice and bacteria. We're increasing our numbers and our, our rates of consumption as much as we, pretty much as much as we can. As long as we continue doing that, we're basically walking out on the edge of an ice shelf that's about to break off. For a majority of the time that we've been here as a, as a species, that was a fine strategy. Make as many of you as you can, so you got a, a bunch can die or get killed by something, and and you still go on. You got protection if you're going to walk around, and a a, a tribe of saber toothed tigers are going to. I don't know if they got tribes, but you know, or an enemy <laughs> yeah. tribe of humans. You know, be fruitful and multiply, so you got lots of little soldiers. I mean, it made. It made sense when the Fertile Crescent and a lot of food around and, you know, in good times. But it's like it's hard then because it's been so recent. This explosion of our power has been so recent. It's really hard to have a self-regulating device emerge. You know, it's like big, scary things like climate or Zika or COVID, (laughs) you know, those feel like the things that might regulate us more easily than, you know, Marxism or something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, we've gone through both phases, actually. When you look back at uh, when human beings were radiating out of Africa tens of thousands of years ago, most places they went, the first thing they did when they got there was you know, kill all the big animals. (laughs) And there are quite a few species that went extinct because human beings just killed them all. That said, however, when people got used to living in particular environments for a long period of time, hundreds and thousands of years, they learned from trial and error how to regulate their, their own use of resources in the environment. And so with indigenous peoples across the planet, we see traditions regulating resource use, population growth. As a result, these were tended to be relatively stable populations. And, and some of these, these resource taboos are 
really ingenious and you know they relate to a particular species and when it's going to be available when it's reproducing and so on they they gave a lot of attention to this the irony here is it's a very young civilization that figured that out. Right. In other words, it's you know, it's sort of post medieval, you know, after Rome fell, we rebuilt civilization, kind of, you know, medieval times or late medieval renaissance, we get industrial age, and then we go around thinking that we are the most advanced civilization when actually we're the babies. We're like the <laughs> kindergartners right. compared to the indigenous populations. And when I go around and say, well, look, you know, the older population our elders, they're not more primitive than we are. They're more advanced than we are because they've been around thousands of years when we've only been around for a few hundred years. And you know, and then you get accused of like, oh, this is some kind of Rousseau, noble, savage argument. And it's like, no, that's that's not what it is. What, what you're referring to is, well, over millennia, these People figured things out that we haven't had time to figure out. And because we're racing so fast as babies, we're toddlers on motorcycles. You know what I mean? We are we're getting to these 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 dangerous places a lot faster than civilizations that were more patient about it moving forward. But it's it's a really hard argument to make now because there's so many like triggers of uh, their intersectional triggers and indigenous triggers and western bias triggers that you that you you trigger when you try to make just sort of simple, basic sense like this. Yeah, I know. And we want to assume that we're smart. You know, we're the smart people. We've got all the experts. We've, we've conquered nature in, in so many ways. People are going to figure these things out. Climate change, well, yeah, it's a huge problem, but we got the smart people. They're going to figure it out. And it's it's not that easy, you know. We're it's going to require fundamental cultural change and individual behavioral change to deal with problems like this. And it does go back to power in in all of its ways. That we've learned, in some sense, from nature, as you say, that whoever has the most power is kind of the safest. You know, is kind of going to do the best. So we understand that the more power, or in our case now, money, I can accumulate, the more insulation I can have from all the bugs and bacteria and bad people who are going to, you know, take food out of my, the applesauce out of my daughter's mouth. Right, right. So how do we get to a place where we start to value other means of security, safety, and well-being? Part of it is is cultural change, as, as I was saying. You know, we, we have to nurture a culture in which kids learn the value of you know, uh, modesty and thrift and self-restraint in all sorts of ways. I mean, indigenous cultures, once again, you know, had that. That's, that's how they taught their kids. Decades ago, people remember. So it's cultural change, but it's also institutional change. There's something we haven't really gotten yet, and that is that extreme power inequality. And you, you mentioned money. Money is basically social power concretized. Extreme power inequality makes society vulnerable to collapse. And we're seeing that around the world today. The people who have the most money use their social power to redesign the rules of society so that they get even more power. That's, you know, that's a natural human uh, impulse to do that. But the result of it is that it makes the entire society more and more vulnerable. People get miserable, they get resentful, and then they they refuse to cooperate. And cooperation is what holds the whole thing together. In your book and in your work in general, you don't pinpoint one moment in history and blame it, you know, which is, that's a tendency in books. You get to sell a lot of books if you go, oh, the wrong turn was agriculture. Oh, the wrong turn was the domination of women. Or, oh, the wrong turn was the, the loss of magic, you know, and enchantment. Or the, the, the one that I've been playing with lately, the, the, the wrong turn was domestication, you know, the domestication of ourselves and others, which is one that you do talk about um, in the book, which is interesting to think of, you know, we always talk about, you know, our domestication of dogs and livestock and animals and all, but we rarely 
realize that we domesticated ourselves. And I feel like there's something in that narrative, in understanding that we've domesticated ourselves to realize, oh, well, then how do we undomesticate ourselves? And what would that and what would that look like? You know, and it might look like something more balanced and egalitarian than than a society that's based in this initial power relationship of us over ourselves. You know, I think our self-domestication went through some phases and some of them were pretty critical. I mean, the initial phase of self-domestication probably happened when we were hunters and gatherers. And there are anthropologists who suggest that killing off of bullies, which we see in surviving hunter-gatherer societies that, you know, that persisted into the 20th mm-hmm. century and got studied by anthropologists, when some guy in the group became really power hungry and obstreperous and and demanding and everything everybody else would just kind of get together behind his back and pick up some stones and clobber him <laughs> to death if necessary or you know just ostracize him out of the group over time you know the the more domineering guys uh, if they if they are dealt with that way they would tend to sire fewer children and you know the the whole population would get a little domesticated But then once we got to the stage of of agriculture and the first states, the first state societies with kings and armies and writing and slaves and all that stuff, then really we see a big leap in this, this process of domestication. You know, I think the early state societies were the most unequal, most brutal societies probably in all of, of human history. Universally, they were slave societies. The vast majority of people in those societies were, were peasants who had very little control over their lives, but they were they were better off than than the enslaved peoples who were generally war captives. And you know, cities were extremely unhealthy, so people had to be imported from the countryside to live in the cities, and that meant encouraging women to have as many children as they possibly could. So the status of women within society, their ability to control their own lives and their own bodies, basically disappeared during this time. It was a it was a miserable development in uh, human social evolution, and we've been trying to recover from it ever ever since. But it's a huge legacy to overcome. It's the story of the Bible, really, the Torah, right? We ran out of water and, you know, there was a famine and everyone went down to Egypt and became slaves. Yeah. You know, they became indentured. <laughs> they came out, but, you know, that's still, we're still on the exodus, you know, we're still trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to do that and how to be the, how to be the, our own grownups here, which is, I mean, and I admit it's hard. You talk about a lot about art as a, essential part of our, you know, journey towards self and mutual responsibility. And and I really like that because maybe just because I get so guilty so easily from my own upbringing. You know, I, I started as an artist. I love the theater. I want to, uh, you know, start directing uh, Cervantes medieval plays, the, the Entremeses, you know, is, is, or is, well, early Renaissance plays that nobody really knows about. And I always worry. It's like, well, the world, we have such pressing problems. There's climate change and racism and terrible things. How dare I go off and make art or make theater, (laughs) you know, play with aesthetics? Do you know what I mean? It feels so non-essential. Well, for one thing, it's making you a better person. Making art, making music and art and dance and theater and all of those things tends to, you know, build bridges between the two halves of our brain. And, you know, our brains got kind of divided against themselves through this process we were talking about earlier, the development of language. The left brain is the more linguistic part, and it kind of took over most of the directive functions of our personality as in the process of developing language and especially literacy later on and all these communication technologies that have followed in in the wake of writing. So the the left brain has become like a little tyrant within our own heads. And uh, making art is a way of kind of taming that tyrant and letting the the other half of the brain have its have its say. Even sports and martial arts will will accomplish the same same thing. You know, going for a long walk in the woods will help that. So it's a good thing in and of itself for your psychological health, your relationships with other people, and so on. But over the longer term, you know, why are 
we hear, I mean, what can we do as human beings with these outsized powers without getting ourselves into trouble? You know, we have these amazing abilities that other animals don't have. And right now we're using them to drive those other species to extinction, to take over the world in ways that are going to have catastrophic consequences. How can we use these outsized powers without doing that? Well, the answer is, you know, use them for spiritual and aesthetic purposes, which a lot of ancient cultures did. You know, they if they had extra money, if they had extra labor power, whatever, they devoted it to building, let's get together and build a huge, beautiful building, big cathedral or whatever, right. or let's throw a huge party. We'll have seasonal celebrations where a lot of capital gets destroyed. Exactly. But everybody gets really happy together. Right. We spend our energy. Right. We use carnival or something. Yeah. And then on top of that, it's like, well, and instead of picking a scapegoat and killing them, why don't we do a scapegoat ritual that spends that scapegoat anger <laughs> energy, but doesn't actually kill somebody, yeah, right? right. We'll put Someone will put on little goat horns and run around and we'll chase them out of the circle and accomplish that. And one less death to feel bad about, right? It seems simple, but it's hard. You know, it's funny. The great thing about having Nate on the show a couple of months ago was he made the case that's an important case, and you've made it too, that the using power to get over this isn't necessarily going to work. In other words, in a capitalist society where we understand power, we think, oh, well, the way to get out of this is I'm going to start a solar panel business. I'm going to start an electric car business. And we're going to, you know, in other words, use the same paradigm to replace these sort of bad energy things with new good energy things without looking at the cost of transitioning over the next 20 years from bad energy to good energy uses more more bad energy than, than <laughs> double the bad energy <laughs> that we have now, you know, yeah. which is a really, a really cool thing that the transition will take more energy than we're, when we're understanding. But a lot of that's based on, you know, and it's funny, you call it exclusionary power. Mm. And when you talk about exclusionary power as sort of as privatization, mm -hmm. right, that, that we say, this is mine, and I have exclusive power over this thing. And the way I've always understood, as sort of almost like a corollary to your exclusionary power of privatization, is the way we can externalize all the bad and all the waste to someone else. Do you know what I mean? It's like the other side. It's like one thing for the wealthy to enclose the greatest pasture. It's another thing for them to then dump everything bad then onto our pasture. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, on top of it. Yeah, and that's happened as, <laughs> as a result of, you know, having too much social power. And the rules of the game get written by, guess who? The people with the most social power. It's a self-reinforcing right. feedback process. And as long as that feedback process is going... You know, we're not going to get any real solutions. Like you were saying, you know, with the, with the energy transition, almost nobody talks about the fact that, you know, if we try to build as many solar panels and wind turbines and batteries and electric cars and uh, new kinds of industrial equipment that are electrified rather than using gas or coal or, or whatever, uh, cement kilns and and blast furnaces and factories and all this. If we try to build rebuild all of that stuff in the next twenty years, at scale at the current scale that we're using them, we would have a huge pulse of carbon emissions because building all that stuff takes energy. And at least in the early stages, we'd be using fossil fuels for for the energy. So the only way out is to reduce the scale at which we're using energy and doing all these other things, flying in planes and, and buying consumer goods and, and, and so on. Nobody wants to hear that. So it doesn't get discussed by governments or even the IPCC. So the people with the power are writing the rules saying, well, the only things we can discuss here are very small and gradual steps that actually, in the end, aren't going to make much difference. Or make the wrong difference. I mean, yeah. instead, what you talk about is moving towards what you've called the, the optimum power principle, right. which, I mean, I guess optimum power principle in our case just means less, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it means it means self-limits on power. And, and we've gotten out of that habit. We've let this huge imbalance in power occur, an imbalance between humanity and the rest of nature, and then between some parts of humanity and, and others. And both of those imbalances are going to have to be scaled down to a point where, you know, we're in a survivable situation. Right. I mean, what you're talking about is is basically is an adaptive cycle. Is like looking at looking at power more as like breath. That like they're okay, you 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 breathe in the power and then you kind of release it. So there's like more uh there's this sort of growth exploitation phase and then this sort of contraction and release phase. And it feels like people might be able to get on board with that, you know, cuz it's like, oh, it's cyclical. It's it's not, I'll never have power again. I'm just like breathing out now. <laughs> yeah, human society, natural systems go through this adaptive cycle that you just described. And human societies have done so as well. The tricky thing now is that the growth phase of the cycle as a result of having fossil fuels has gone so far and to such extremes that we're going to have to cut back quite a lot. Sometimes when the adaptive cycle goes to past the the growth phase toward the you know the reorganization phase it looks like what we call societal collapse and uh, nobody wants that to happen now <laughs> me included you know a collapsing society means high rates of mortality loss of cultural goods of all kinds knowledge and we want to have a controlled adaptation to limits to natural limits as opposed to a collapse. But, you know, if we keep going the way we're going now, then, you know, nature will rein us in, but not in ways that we particularly will enjoy. Right. I mean, I had such hopes in the early digital era that digital would reduce a lot of things, you know, that it would change our relationship to capitalism because now we're going to be in a decentralized distributed thing. We're going to start, you know, doing homespun, homebrew, computer club sort of, you know, very local business now because we can make our own stuff. And even with, you know, even early 3D printing, I was thinking, oh, great, we can have local industry and print what we need and make every... And of course, it didn't go that way. And largely because, you know, digital technology was so good at abstract things, you know, that it amplified capitalism and these symbol systems and all these contracts that we have that are really one or two steps removed from reality. You know, you could you could look at, I mean, and a lot of people do, you could look at growth-based capitalism and central currency as the one of the primary criminals here because we're growing, we have to grow and dig and do more and more and more in order to support a banking system. So if we just change the banking system, then we won't have to grow anymore. So I thought, yay, but digital is so consonant with these exponentially growth-based capitalist, you know, power-hungry models. If anything, it's made it harder to unwind from this, not easier. Well, technology gives us power. That's why we like technology. That's why we adopt technology. And if our problem is too much power or imbalances of power, where either humanity has too much vis-a-vis the natural world or some people have too much, it's hard to see how a new technology is really going to get to the heart of that problem. That's why I'm, you know, I, 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 I like renewable energy. I have solar panels on, on the roof of my house. I think we should be, you know, building more of that and, and getting rid of the, of the coal plants, power plants and all that. Yes. But I do not have any hope really that substituting one technology, i.e. renewable energy for another technology, i.e. you know, coal and gas fired power plants is going to solve our fundamental problems. It's going to change power relations somewhat. But, you know, I think a lot of people have the hope that, you know, distributed power from solar on rooftops is really going to solve all of our, our of our human problems. But, you know, it's going to create as many problems as it solves. 
Right. And that's where going back, you know, that's where I start having faith in things like the arts and changing narrative and telling new stories, because then we go to sort of more that that fundamental place that drives human behavior. You know, and and if so, if you have different narratives that don't involve the acquisition of power as the path towards, uh, uh, you know, safety and, and happiness, then maybe we start stop driving that way. It's just a little late in the game to, <laughs> yeah. to tell everybody a new story. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, get the solar panels, but examine your life. What are you trying to achieve in your life? What makes you happy? That Those are more important questions in, in the long run. But you know, you talk, talk to my neighbor who just got new air conditioning in her house and she'll say, look, what makes me happy in 105 degree weather is yeah. being able to crank up my air conditioning and have <laughs> and live in 72 degree rooms and be able to walk in any room in my house and have a 72 degree temperature. And I tell her, you realize though, the more air conditioners we put in, the hotter it gets and the more air conditioners we need. She's like, well, yeah, but what else are you going to do? You know, maybe start making more efficient air conditioners. I mean, it's a tricky place we're in. Yeah, it is a tricky place. I, you know, I don't. I don't want to be dogmatic in in anything I'm saying. Uh, I I did say, you know, re renewable energy good. You know, we need more of it. And uh, you know, what, a couple of years ago, we we got a what's called a mini split system for our house, which is you know heats heats and cools, and it's extremely energy efficient. It. Uh, if we put many split systems into houses all across the country, it would save, you know, gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions and, and everything. Does it make me happy? <laughs> no, sitting down at the piano makes me happy, actually. <laughs> yeah, but sitting down at the piano in a 75-degree house makes you happier yeah, right, right. than sitting down okay. at the piano in a 105-degree house. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other place you go with it, which is great, because whenever I get stuck with all the digital people, who I'm one of them, so I mean, I, I don't mean it in a bad way, but whenever I'm with the digital people, they always talk about Fermi's paradox, which I was so glad you brought up. So, you know, Fermi's paradox, for people that don't know, is basically the idea of like if there's other species out there in the universe then one of them should have surely developed past our level to the to the place where there's warp drives and they would have come and visited us by now and if not it means that what must be happening is they get to a certain point of technological development and then they go extinct so therefore that's what's going to happen to us and you offered another answer to Fermi's paradox that I like a lot better. Yeah, well, what if when uh, a species becomes intelligent enough, you know, evolves to a certain level of maturity, what if that species just decides to restrain its appetites and sit back and enjoy its beautiful planet and make it even more beautiful? That would be the smart thing to do, actually. But if that's the case, if that's what really intelligent species tend to do, we probably wouldn't be getting signals from them because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't bother with uh, any kind of super high tech uh, that consumes enormous amounts of energy and raw materials and, and so on. Because doing that would jeopardize their beautiful, happy lives. Right. That's why, you know, I, I when I look at alternative visions to, you know, Western industrial capitalism, you know, I prefer although I had some problems with the movie, of course, but but I prefer like the avatar vision mm. of an advanced society, yeah. that these people are just like one with nature and in that sort of, you know, that, that magical, enchanted relationship with nature and hearing the plants and all. I prefer that to say... Um, like Black Panther, when they, they're supposed to be, oh, well, look, you know, you go to Africa and there's like a secret dome that they've put over this very European-styled, super high-tech advanced civilization. So it's as if, oh, look, the African alternative to Western capitalist industrialism is this super high-tech society. And I feel like it, it, in some ways, you know, and I need to talk to more, uh, you know, legitimate Afrofuturists about this, but it, it feels like in some ways it delegitimizes the more advanced civilization that was actually there and disrupted by colonialism. Yeah, I, I, I like that you use that word disrupted because in high-tech circles, disruption is great. <laughs> it's hard to praise anything more than to say it's disruptive. 
But what does disruption feel? Do, do we want our lives constantly disrupted? No, that's miserable. You know, what we really want is a, is a life that is not, maybe not entirely predictable, but one in which there's, there's stability and a sense of security and a sense in which you're, you're investing yourself into something that's going to have intergenerational you know, dividends on, you know, children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, and the world will constantly be a, a, a better place. Disruption is the enemy of that. <laughs> yeah. How would you ever build a cathedral yeah. in a society that's having disruptions every decade? It would never happen. Even in the fast-paced Italian Renaissance, you know, a new kind of communication tool or something like that only came along once every, maybe once every uh, generation or century or something. But we've gotten used to this this pace of technological uh, and cultural change that is, it's disorienting. Uh, parents can't talk to their children and grandchildren because we live in different mental universes in so many ways. Is that a good thing for us? I don't think so. No, 16-year-old siblings can't talk to 12-year-old siblings. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, that, it's become that different. Yeah. It's like, we're on TikTok. Oh, you're still on TikTok? Yeah. We're on this. It's like, oh, no. And meanwhile, it takes, you know, it takes generations and generations in one place to learn the ecological limits, not just mentally, but to internalize them so that you create a culture that is actually, you know, living within those limits and where people have found, you know, satisfying and happiness-making ways of, of adapting themselves. So we have, a, we have a long way to go to learn from indigenous societies and to learn, uh, relearn those natural limits for ourselves. Or we'll go away and some of the people, hopefully, in the indigenous societies will will survive us. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I talk to Tyson Yunkaporta about these things, he's always like, ah, civilizations come and go. This is your civilization's turn. We've seen it. We've seen it all. You yeah. know, he's he's kind of almost relaxed about it because it, it's what happens. A, a lot of my listeners, there's, you know, 100, 150,000 people will hear this conversation, which is, you know, humbling, you know, rather than hubris creating. But... I wonder what what do we tell them? Most of the emails I get from activated uh, uh, listeners who want to participate is, I'm going to build a new website that aggregates all of the information about this, or I'm going to create a token that you know represents carbon capture, and uh, you know, so all of these people very independently have these kind of huge kind of mega project, usually online or tech-related mega project. And I don't want to uh, stop that activity because if nothing else, it's interesting that it's playing a game. It's But what can real people do to try to assist us in averting this disaster? I mean, I've been telling people just, and, and everyone tells me it doesn't really work, but even just on an individual level, consume less, fly less, pick one trip that you're going to do every decade rather than every vacation, learn your local neighborhood, use your power less. What should just people, what, what can people do and is it enough? Frankly, I think we have some difficult times ahead of us one way or the other right now. So it's hard to say if it's enough, but I think it's really important that people begin to pre-adapt to limits in their own lives and in their, their, their own minds. You know, and that means doing all the things that you've been saying. For many, many years, my, my wife Janet and I have celebrated the solstices, two solstices a year, winter and summer, by doing an energy fast, you know, where we just don't do anything that, that requires electricity or gasoline or, or anything else for 24 hours. That's just long enough to help you realize how much we take for granted and I think an energy fast is like really, really helpful. Or learning what's called primitive technology, taking a class in flint napping or making string out of uh, you know plant that you plants that you harvest. Doing that for a weekend, or better yet, for for a week or two, it helps you realize just how ingenious our hunter gatherer gatherer ancestors were, but also puts you back in touch 
with, you know, real stuff, real living materials and environments so that you're not just assuming that everything comes from the internet or the store or the Amazon Prime delivery truck. I remember the moment that my, uh, we were growing, we finally tried to grow some food in the backyard. And my daughter was like three. And she saw, I pulled up a carrot that we grew. And her jaw dropped that like, that's where they come from. She thought they came from the supermarket, that place That's where right. the carrots are. She saw it came. Where? How did you put that in there? It's like that grew out of the ground. That's where they come from. It's a miracle. You know, it wasn't as bad as the moment that she realized that chicken and that chicken and chicken were the same word. That was really upsetting. You mean this is a chicken? That's why we call it chicken. That was that was a darker moment. Well, a good moment in some ways. But uh, but I, but you're right. To, just to reconnect on the most basic level with the cycles of nature and where things come from, and to participate in that, it's very, it, it's mind and heart expanding. I mean, nature is going to force us to do a lot of this at some point. But if we pre-adapt. We're going to make the, the, the process of adaptation, a, you know, we'll be able to do it more on our own terms rather than, you know, being forced by desperate circumstances. Yeah, we, we transition through like kind of a, a glamping phase. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, glamping, sort of glamorous camping. It's like, it's sort of wind it down slowly. It's like, oh, this is glamping. Okay, <laughs> now it's, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, if, I I want my, you know, I know my daughter wants to go to college and do all those things now. And I keep thinking, gosh, I'd love her to go to like an agriculture college and learn about, you know, basic irrigation and construction and, you know, rather than training to be whatever, college is for, you know, these days, it's like to become a, an insurance actuary or something. That's not uh, uh, what we're going to fall back on is not, you know, your actuarial skills, it's going to be your, your, you know, your hands on, your hands on abilities. Yeah, learn how to fix small engines, you know, or how, how to make tools that don't require electricity or fuel. You know, simpler tools require a lot more skill for their use. More complicated tools, often, you know, they, they're all automated and you press a button, it does it all for you. But then that leaves you a little bit more stupid because, <laughs> because you never learned how to do that thing yourself. Well, that's again, that's capitalism was here. I mean, one of the big things they teach in like the uh, uh, food industry is de-skilling, you know, how to say, okay, let's give people carrots that they don't even need to peel. You know, they come pre-peeled. So you're just trying to de-skill America in order to sell them the things that they can do themselves and actually derive joy from. You know, I took, I mean, it sounds, I really sound old now, but I took a course in high school called Auto Mechanics. Auto Mechanics 1 and Auto Mechanics 2. And believe it or not, there was a time not so long ago when you could pretty much fix anything wrong with your car yourself. You know, there was some stuff, if it got really deep, that you need to go to the guy, you know, at the garage or the, or the woman at the garage to, to fix. But it was user-friendly. Points, plugs, gaskets, muffler, brakes. We changed all those ourselves, and they taught it in school. And it was part of being an adult was knowing how to do this stuff. You know, and I passed kids... On the highway now, I passed these guys. I stopped. They were 17, 18 year old kids with a flat tire on the side, of, staring at it with no idea what to do. They couldn't get cell reception. They were stranded. And it's like, okay, let me open your trunk for you and show you what's in here. There's a jack. There's a wheel. The, even, we can e put this on. Even it more really disturbing. Works. You know, we, we got an electric car a couple of years ago. It was a used electric car. It's not a you know not a fancy one, uh -huh. but it doesn't have a spare tire. And this is the direction in which things are going. It doesn't even have a spare tire. No no jack. Nothing. The assumption is, if you have a problem, you get on your cell phone, call the expert in the vehicle that will come and pick up your car and take it to where they will fix the tire. Or, or give you a new one. Well, if it's a Tesla, it probably <laughs> calls home, you know, yeah, it calls right. home. before you even know your tire is flat, there's a drone, you know, uh, that all, meets all you halfway. All of this halfway. is disempowering yeah. us. This is, this is what I, I'm, I talk about in the book. All of this is disempowering us. And if you want to reclaim your power, you actually have to do something. 
You have to learn about your environment, about limits, about how to do things. You have to develop skills. And, uh, and it takes work and it takes time. It's hard, but it's rewarding. That kind of power, not the, not the, the instanta- instantaneous power of wealth or fame or something like that, but the, the internal power of, of skills and knowing your environment and how to make your way in it, that kind of empowerment really, you know, is a source of long-term happiness. And that's where I think our, our red state brothers and sisters, you know, that blue state progressives, you know, are so, we so easily look down on them that, that a large portion, a large proportion of those people know how to do stuff. They farm. They're electricians. They're your contractors. They're the ones who know how to put Tyvek on the side of a house or to replumb something. It's not easy to plumb. I've tried. It's really hard. You got to know a lot of stuff. So, you know, people who 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 many might have disdain for, for their inability to, uh, uh, you know, conceive abstract systemic models of society and post-Marxist, post-colonialist <laughs> thought, on the other hand, know how to do the actual stuff that we've alienated ourselves from, which is why we must, the only solution, I think, is to come together and realize, oh, look, what if we combine our systems thinking with their actual ability to do shit, we might end up with a civilization worth living in. And, and that's ultimately, that's where it comes to, you know, as a civilization, do we deserve to survive? If we can look at our, ourselves collectively in the mirror, and what what we're actually doing to each other and to the environment, and the answer is no, then, you know, it's not going to end well. We have to be an organism and individuals within our species who who really deserve to survive in, in order for this to, to come out okay. And that means giving back in all kinds of ways. It means being practically competent in the ways we've just been talking about. It means being uh, more accommodating and friendly to one another and less, you know, blaming and polarized and all, all, of, all of the rest. Richard Heinemann, thank you. You know, thanks for being on Team Human. And, and I mean, it's tough love. You know, it's a little tough love here, but it's love all the same, you know. And uh, I, I do feel, oddly enough, you know, I, I do feel more, not less hopeful on speaking with you, you know, that, that we can, you know, we can collectively rise to the occasion of our own, uh, of our own <laughs> existence <laughs> and, you know, learn to, learn to share, learn to share power with each other and every, every other, uh, every other living and non-living thing here to continue this little story a bit longer. If we do, life is going to be a lot more beautiful and we'll, and we'll be a lot happier as, as a result. Well, thank you. And thank you, Richard. Thanks for being on Team Human. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Douglas. It, it always is. So I, I hope we have another opportunity before too long. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Richard Heinberg, author of the new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. You can find out more about him and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a paying supporter of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.